love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, get ready. This is the podcast for work that is meaningful, work that you love, work that's purposeful, and yes, work that is profitable. We don't have to sacrifice. Sometimes people think, well, if I really did what I love, then I'm going to have to learn to live on beans and rice, as my buddy Dave Ramsey says. No, do work that you love and money will show up unexpectedly. Well, we're going to spend this time, the 48 Days Online Radio Show here, talking about your questions, listener questions from you that'll help all of us be more successful in what we do. You know, success principles are very transferable. They don't apply to just one industry or one company, one business, one profession. No, success principles transfer to anything that you're doing. So stay with us. Here's some of the questions we're going to be covering in today's show. Dan, I'm making $55,000 now and was just offered $45,000 for a new position. How does someone keep from getting some crazy lowball offer like that? Dan, what are your thoughts on higher degrees and student loans? I feel passion at war with practicality. Well, there's a great line. I feel passionate war with practicality. Well, we'll talk about that. Dan, what's the best way to get the word out about me, my services, and who I can help on a shoestring budget? Could you offer any suggestions on how to get started in a voice acting career? Here, here's a boy. Here's a hot potato. I mean, you guys just keep throwing them in here. We're going to take them as they come. No problem. Listen to this. Dan, can you imagine Peter or Paul? Now we're talking about biblical characters, Peter or Paul repackaging their message to reach a broader audience. Well, there's an interesting question. We'll talk about that. Well, this is a show where each week we examine the value of our work. We know work isn't just an exchange of time for a paycheck. It's our best opportunity to live out our calling and to create the legacy we want to leave behind. Now, I've got a quotation for us today to start off. This comes out of Chris Gilbu's new book, The $100 Startup. We've talked about that. Uh, I've given away a lot of copies. Chris is a great guy. The book is doing well and just full of wonderful ideas. But he's got a quotation in there right in the introduction. It says this. There is no rehab program for being addicted to freedom. Once you've seen what it's like on the other side, good luck trying to follow someone else's rules ever again. <laughs> well, that's an interesting kind of philosophy, you know, but isn't that true? Isn't it true that once you've seen something, I mean, I joke about this with my wife all the time. I tell her that, you know, once she experiences something that she can never go back again, you know, experience a really great restaurant and then never again do all the ordinary ones, you know, measure up. Golly, I remember coming through all the years that we've been married, you know, I uh, get her lots of different, she's had lots of different cars. Me being a car guy, you know, I flip cars for her every six or eight months or so. So, you know, power windows, gee, she never wants to have a car again without power windows. I remember the first time she got a car with heated seats. Jeez, you would have thought I got her a new puppy. Heated seats. I mean, is that really a necessity? However, having had it once, yeah, she doesn't want to ever have a car without heated seats. 
know, then we went to the car that, you know, beeps a little bit when you back up, gets too close to something. And then a, a camera so you can see what's happening. And it's funny at each step of the way, I keep telling her I spoil her because as she's introduced to new things, you know, you can never, never go back again. But you know, that is true. What if you get addicted to the kind of freedom that comes from running your own business? And I run into this all the time. I mean, I, when I talk to entrepreneurs, people who have done their own business and then maybe things didn't work out the way they wanted. And so they say, well, I just need to go, you know, get a job again. At least I'll have a steady paycheck, you know, and I laugh and I, I, I talk very openly to them about the fact that I just don't see that working well. Even if somebody has not had a great experience in doing something for themselves, they've seen too much. They've experienced, they've tasted the freedom, the time flexibility, the open-ended income that comes from that. It's really tough to make yourself go back. You know, Hey, we could, well, let's just dramatize this a little bit. We, we could, we can kind of play this up even a little bit more here if we want to. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. Well, you know the famous speech, Dr. Martin Luther King. You know, when you've been to the mountaintop, you've seen the promised land. There's so many references to that in history and through the Bible and our own experiences. When you've been to the mountaintop and seen the promised land, it's hard to go back. Hard to go back to Egypt. Hard to go back to making bricks without any straw once you've had a taste of that. Well, I hope that inspires you as it does me. Let's go to the questions for today. Dan, I earned $55,000 a year as a CPA. When looking to change jobs, I went on three interviews with the company, had a good feeling and seemed to be going well. The job was almost the same kind of work I was doing. They knew my salary requirement, 55,000 to 60,000 a year. Now again, he was making 55. So they knew his salary requirement, 55 to 60. Then we get to the salary offer. They were offering me $45,000 and they were serious. To say the least, I was not impressed with them and do not work for them. How does someone keep from getting some crazy lowball offer like that? Especially when you're not doing a desperate out of job work, out of work job search. All the books and classes say you're not supposed to talk about salary over the phone or at the first interview. Well, Nick, no, you're not. Don't talk about salary. You put yourself in a weak position if you, the interviewee, bring up salary at all. It should be brought up by the person doing the interviewing from the company standpoint. Now, if you're making $55,000 a year, they know that you want fifty-five dollars to $60,000 a year. I mean, that's certainly just going to be a horizontal move. It's certainly not much of an increase. But if that's, in fact, 
the range that you said you wanted. They offered you 45. That is not unreasonable as a starting point. I mean, keep in mind, the first offer that you get in a professional position should never be the negotiated end point. It just opens a conversation for negotiation. Why would a company offer you the very max that they could in the very first go round about salary discussions? They shouldn't do that. I mean, if they know that you are expecting 60, you've been making 55. I mean, offering you 45 is not an unreasonable starting point. And you can very graciously say, you know, I think that we're both on the same path here. You're a company that I very much want to work with. I think we both agree that I can bring value to the company, but based on my understanding of the responsibilities, I would see that more in the 58 to $65,000 range. Is that still within your budget? You'd be surprised how companies find more in their budget. If you, if they have already invested in you three times, three interviews, they've already invested a lot of time, energy and money in your selection process. They're not just going to flip you out and go to the next person on the list. If you come back and say, no, $45,000 isn't going to do it, but you know, I would be more seriously interested at 60. I mean, that's the way negotiation takes place. So, you know, get more interviews, but you'll, you'll get a real sense of what your marketability is out there. But if you are aggressive about getting other interviews, then you ought to have multiple offers that you can weigh against each other. Review the section 48 days to the work you love on interviewing. It'll help you kind of re re get, get ready for the next go round of interviews that you will likely have. Well, Jenny from California says, um, I'm starting a business exactly like task rabbit. My challenge right now is distinguishing myself from TaskRabbit and others like it. What makes my service better than my competitors? Why should people use my business instead of TaskRabbit? I want to answer those questions before I start, but I also don't want to sit on this. According to the $100 startup, there's no point in introducing something if the market is already satisfied with the solution. TaskRabbit is doing such a great job. Does that mean the market is satisfied? Should I start my business without knowing my USP, my unique selling proposition? Maybe the answer will come to me once I start. All right, Jenny, there's a whole lot of things that come into the market in times when people are already satisfied with what's available. I mean, Apple became the most successful company in the world by inventing things we didn't know we needed. Now, if you think about this a little bit, even um, Henry Ford said, if I had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. I mean, people were satisfied with what they had. People rejected the idea of some loud internal combustion machine going down the road, producing smoke. You know, so he had to sell them on what they needed before they knew they needed it. So no, there's a lot of things where the market is satisfied, but there's plenty of room for new inventions, new, whatever. I mean, when I, when I wrote 48 days to the work you love, my gosh, you could walk into any bookstore and there's 75 books on the shelves about how to find work, how to find, uh, you know, a job, how to do interviewing, how to start your own business. I mean, anything like that. There's lots of books out there that mean that I would just decided, well, there's already out there. The market is saturated, not a chance. There's plenty of ways to create a unique selling proposition as you're describing. You can get rich by doing something 10% better or providing 
added value. Now, TaskRabbit, if other listeners are not familiar with that, I mean, it's a, it's a great setup. You can go there and say, I'm going to be out of the house for part of the day and I need somebody to come over and take my three kittens on a walk around the block. I mean, things, it, you'd be amazed what's there. That's tax, task rapid. If you want somebody to put together a new set of shelves that you bought at Home Depot and you don't know how and don't have the tools and don't want to spend the time, you can have somebody come and put together those shelves. So it's that kind of thing. But now if you think about even like Angie's List or Craigslist, I mean, there, there's a lot of overlap in what TaskRabbit is doing. They didn't go into a, a totally new and different market. They just kind of package it a little bit different. Think also about Groupon. Now, Groupon came along and just exploded with their daily coupons. You can get a massage today, normally $80, but you buy now for $40. I mean, that's what made them extremely popular. But there's over 300 other daily coupon companies that popped up around that. And I've got a really good friend who started one of those companies and just kind of rode the coattails of what Groupon had done. Then Yipit came along. Now, now I happen to use Yipit, Y-I-P-I-T.com. They came along. What they do is they go search Groupon and all those 300 other coupon companies, and they search for only things that I tell them I'm interested in. So I'm interested in eating coupons, entertainment coupons that are right here in Franklin, Tennessee. So I don't go through all those different companies and I don't subscribe to any of those. So if it's leaving social group on or whatever, I don't care. They're all out there, but I use Yip it because it just goes and searches all of those and finds the very things that I'm interested in and only the things I'm interested in. So that's sometimes you can take a whole lot of existing competition out there and you provide your added value by doing something 10% better, just do something like that. Now, the other part of your question, should I start my business without knowing my USP? Maybe the answer will come to me once I start. Absolutely not. You're wasting time, energy, and money by starting a company when you don't understand what your USP is. Don't do that. Figure out what are you going to do 10% better than task rabbit. So yes, figure that out. Don't just try to be another wannabe. I mean, it really, it breaks my heart when I go out here in, in our community and we're in a community that has a whole lot of eating places. I mean, it's just so overrun with eating places. It's ridiculous. It makes it fun for us, the consumers, but I certainly would not want to get into that business. But just this week, I took my daughter-in-law to, we went out for lunch and I said, Hey, here's a new Mexican restaurant, West Coast Burrito. So yet one more Mexican place. And of course I love Mexican food and she does as well. So we went there, West Coast Burrito. It's really a neat little place, cool furniture in there. But I, we talked about it. I said, you know, what is their unique selling proposition? What makes this a place that I would come back to or that I would drive a block out of my way for nothing. There's nothing unique about it. It's just one more place. And I cringe when I see that because those places are really going to struggle. So yes, make sure you know what your unique selling proposition is for any new business that you're going to start. Darcy's from Reno, Nevada. Hi, Dan. Love your advice and wisdom. My dream would be to help organize a nonprofit with a famous Aussie country star and neighbor of yours, Keith Urban. 
Uh, Keith does. Keith and his wife, Nicole Kidman, live right here in Franklin. How in the heck does one go about approaching the incredulous, near impenetrable wall that famous people have around them for good reason, I know. But in all seriousness, I'm genuine in my dream and just need to be able to present my purpose in a meaningful way to the people who can help make it happen. Any pearls of wisdom? Heartfelt blessings to all of you. And Frank and I'll be working the CMT Awards show this coming week. Yeah, this week is CMT. And Nashville is a buzz and just overrun with country music fans and celebrities who are here for country music activities this week. Well, Darcy, here's the, you really can do this. There is a site and the site is contact any celebrity, contact any celebrity.com. Now you can try it out. I think you can try it for like 30 days for a dollar or something. I actually subscribe to that. That means that I can go in there and I can find a famous person if I want to and who their contact information is. So if I want to contact Keith Urban, yeah, you can go there and you can find information for Keith Urban that you can get to him. Now that, that is going to be somewhat impersonal. What you're better off to do is to use the process, you know, the old line, six degrees of separation, find somebody who knows somebody who can connect you with Keith Urban. I and mean, he's not that unapproachable gal. You can find Keith and Nicole at a local coffee house here. If you show up the right time in the morning, um, they're not that unapproachable, but find somebody who knows somebody like that. Chad Jeffers is a, a friend of mine and Chad is a guitarist with Carrie Underwood right now. But Chad has a reputation for just being known in the industry. He's never auditioned for a part. So he has somebody call him up and you know, the guy says, uh, well, let's see who was one of the ones. Oh, Kenny, Kenny Loggins, Kenny Loggins calls Chad up and says, um, cutting a new album in, uh, Los Angeles two weeks from now. Can you be there? I want you to play in my album. And, and Chad, this was years ago, you know, and Chad was a younger guy and he's like, yeah, yeah, right. Who is this really? You know, I thought the friend was playing a prank on him and, and Kenny says, no, this is Kenny Loggins. And Chad is like, well, geez, do you want me to come audition? Do you want me to send you a demo? And he's like, no, you know, I talked to Steve and Steve says, you're the guy. Well, that's been we joke about that being Chad Jeffers reputation because people just say that line again and again and again, you're the guy. So what you want to do is be so remarkable in what you do that people ask to be connected with you. Now it's, it's really hard to take just the seed of an idea and say, well, I need Keith Urban's input and his celebrity status in order to make this work. I mean, you're better off to find out a way to make it work on its own, not just dependent on that. So when it's up and running, then his celebrity status, if it's something that he really feels strongly about, you you can add his celebrity status to it and make it even better. So I would reject an idea if it required one person's involvement for you to think that it's really going to be able to be successful. Get it successful, then it'll attract the attention of people who will fuel your success even more. Raven from Los Angeles. Dan, what are your thoughts on higher degrees and student loans? I've only three classes left until I'm done with my MBA, which I would complete it by December. However, I don't plan to use that degree. I'm also working on an associate's degree in art and commercial music, which is what I love and plan to work in. I will be finished next June. I already have about $70,000 in student loan debt and I need to take out another $14,000 to finish. 
Should I get out now and cancel the 14000 or go ahead and spend the extra to finish? I found my passion in fine art and music while I was working toward this MBA, and I've learned a lot about myself in business. I feel passion at war with practicality. What would you do? I love that line. I feel passion at war with practicality. Well, it shouldn't have to be an either or choice. This is one of those where we're going to look for and solutions where you can follow your passion and be practical as well. This, I mean, I cringe when I hear this. You've got $70,000 in student loan debt right now and you're looking at another 14. Yeah, I would say stop today. I mean, I just, I, I hate the idea of going that deeply in debt. Now, I'm glad you found what you wanted to do, but I mean, really, I mean, I, I'm going to be kind of a contrarian here for a minute. When we talk about art and commercial music, I mean, now, who's going to ask you in those fields about what degrees you have? I mean, we use people in art, commercial music all the time. I have never asked somebody for a resume or ask them what degrees they had or where they went to school or how much training they had. All I want to know is show me what you can do. Show me what you've done in the last six months. That's what I want to see. Now I'm not negating the value of degrees. And if you can complete, if you only have three classes left to complete your MBA, yeah, absolutely. I would recommend that you do that, but don't say that you don't plan to use that degree. That totally violates what the purpose of education ought to be. If you say you're not going to use that degree, that means you aren't going to try to go out here and get a job where you're using that piece of paper that says you have an MBA on it as your ticket. Well, that's an improper approach anyway. I mean, keep in mind with education, especially advanced degrees, there are two reasons for those. One is to get a piece of paper in the hope that somebody's going to give you a job. The second one is for the personal growth and learning that takes place. Now, if you get a, if you get that degree for reason, number one, you're likely to be disappointed. There's plenty of people here where I live who have master's degrees, MBAs who are asking if you want fries with that, or if you want paper or plastic, well, don't consider your education as simply a ticket to a job. Education is part of your enrichment, personal growth that can never be taken away, but don't go into this kind of debt for it. I mean, 70,000 bucks, another 84, you'd end up with $84,000. No, 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 no. There's too many ways to do it. You don't have to go into debt to get those kind of degrees. I mean, especially if you're working on a couple of associates degrees like that. Now I, I would get in the game of what you want to do for one thing, you know, to be in college and then just flounder around and try to figure out what you want to do. That's a very expensive time process to just figure out what you want to do. Figure out what you want to do while you're getting paid to learn, get a job somewhere, get multiple jobs. And in that process, get the clarification before you invest the time in schooling in a particular field. Well, anyway, what would I do? What would I do? You asked me what I, yeah, I would not borrow the $14,000. I would draw a line in the sand and say, I have borrowed my last dollar and now I've got this mountain of debt to repay already. And I'm looking at fields you know, art, commercial music, which are not known for giving you a $200,000 a year income anyway, and you're going to, it's going to take you a long time to repay that. Now I already, I already sent you Raven. I shot you a note when I opened this email and I sent you chapter three out of my new upcoming book, wisdom meets passion. It's titled, I owe $133,000 and can't find a job. 
It's an entire chapter devoted to this issue, how to get an education that really matters without going into debt in a traditional way. So I hope that helps you. Luke from the Big Island, Hawaii. That, his address says Big Island, Hawaii. I guess that actually is an address. Interesting. All right, Dan, I was considering becoming a golf course superintendent. Although many aspects of the career appeal to me, as I have been doing my research, I have learned that long-term exposure to golf course pesticides could be very bad for my health. Should I accept the risk and continue on this career path? Wow. That, that long-term exposure to golf course pesticides could be bad for your health. Well, I live in Franklin, Tennessee. About 200 miles from here, we have Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where they've done a lot of nuclear testing and all that. They think that there have been a whole lot of things put into the air there. They're not very healthy. We have this Tennessee Valley. I mean, our electrical cooperative, it's called the Tennessee Valley Authority. We have this big valley. The air doesn't move real fast. And the, everything in this valley seems to kind of just hang together. Do we have some effects of that that has happened over there at Oak Ridge here where I live? Yeah, we probably do. What about the people? What about the people in, in Los Angeles? I used to live in Anaheim, California, just south of Los Angeles. And I'd get up in the morning and rub my eyes because of the smog. Do you think that stuff is harmful to your health? Absolutely. I mean, why, why would anyone choose to live in Los Angeles? But now obviously people do. My, my point is, I don't think you can find any place or any kind of work that is totally devoid of some kind of risk. And I don't mean to just diminish the challenges that we ought to use our heads about, but I can't imagine that this is a high risk factor that pesticides used on golf courses. I mean, if that were a really accepted fact, people would not choose voluntarily to go out and spend, you know, four hours out there walking around laying in the grass. I mean, they, they wouldn't do that. So I don't think this is enough to deter you from doing something that you think otherwise you would enjoy. I, I think if you just look for something that has absolutely no downside, you're going to end up, you know, sitting on a rock in the middle of an Island in the ocean somewhere and not doing anything productive so I would weigh the effects that you have discovered, but I really don't believe that that's enough to deter you from something that would otherwise be enjoyable. All right, Dan, I blog at thecodecoach.com, a fire prevention life safety blog. The blog is successfully gaining a following. I want to get into fire prevention, life safety coaching, consulting. What's the best way to get the word out about me, my services, and who I can help on a shoestring budget? This service can be marketed to places of worship, entertainment facilities, and industrial manufacturing plants, and even to individual homeowners. Thanks for the advice. Love no more dreaded Mondays. Love listening to your show. Well, thanks for your your question. Now, here here's how we can look at this. And this is real. I mean, we can look at this right on the surface and get some real insights here. Fire prevention 
is not one of those things where you can knock on somebody's door and say, hey, if you pay me $100, I'll come in and I'll teach you about fire prevention. People don't expect to get information about that in that way. It's just one of those kind of natural things. But yeah, we know we need to know a little bit more about it, but we aren't going to pay somebody for that kind of advice. We expect to get it you know, from a professional somewhere or in some kind of workshop seminar. Thus, how can you start doing that in a consulting coaching manner and make income from it. Well, I think you need to find people who also want to have access to the same audience. Now you mentioned that this could be done in places of worship. So you're teaching people about fire safety. And I I think that's a legitimate kind of approach. Charlie Neese is a local weatherman here in Nashville. Really great guy. Charlie and I have lunch together a couple times a year just to keep connected but he's a weatherman. He wanted to do much like what you're doing. He wanted to teach people about weather. I mean, how to prepare. We're in an area here where we get a lot of tornadoes and he really wanted to help teach people about weather. Well, the same thing. People aren't going to pay to get coached about how to respond properly to weather conditions, but he knew it was important information that people really ought to know. And so I suggested to Charlie, I said, you find people who would like to have exposure to the same audience, get them to come on as sponsors for the events that you want to have so the people attending can come for free and that'll dramatically increase the size of your audiences and give you opportunity to sell other materials you've got and so on. Here's an email I got just recently from Charlie. Dan, I hope you're doing well. I wanted to update you in the success of my second tornado safe live event in Murray, Kentucky last week. I arranged to do my tornado safe program at the Glendale road church of Christ. I was able to sell more than $2,000 in sponsorships. I called 14 businesses, many suggested by the church, and 12 of them came on as sponsors. Sponsors included a Chevy dealership, the local electric utility, the local interstate batteries distributor, the local state farm office, and primary care medical center. 140 people showed up. It was a great evening. My prayer was that it would be a blessing for all involved. And I had many positive responses from those who attended from the church leadership and from the sponsors as well. I used press releases to get the events promoted on both radio and in the newspaper. The church also announced the event from stage on Sunday on the two Sundays prior to the event. It seems as if I've stumbled upon a model that is working. I'm working on two more now, both in September, one in Madisonville, Kentucky, one in Huntington, Tennessee, I'm continuing to look at targeting more towns and would like to have four more scheduled by the end of the year. That is the greatest model for you that I can suggest. If you want to teach fire safety, do it in a way that Charlie is doing weather safety. Same way, get sponsorships. Now his first one, he talked to 14 businesses and got 12 to come on as sponsors. I mean, that's an incredible closing ratio. What, I mean, that's, that's amazing. That's just unheard of. That's just, that's great in every way. $2,000. So he just did one. He wants to do four more before the end of the year. Well, that's five events, $2,000 a piece that he puts in his pocket. No cost of his own. The church or whatever provides a facility. That's 10,000 bucks. Not a bad deal. That's the way you ought to do it. Oh, Hey, I need to squeeze this in here. You know, this is Dan Miller. You're listening to 48 Days Online Radio, where each week we take questions from you, the listeners, and just unpack them. I try to choose those that would have meaning, benefit for all of us. I know they vary in terms of professional application, industry application, 
But as I mentioned at the top, success principles are highly transferable. So we just look at these things that you can use in what you're doing. You've got a question, go to the 48days.com site, click on the podcast link. You'll be able to introduce your question there. I'd be happy to consider that for an upcoming show. Well, Joe says, Joe from Raleigh, North Carolina, could you offer any suggestions on how to get started in a voice acting narrating career? I've had many people tell me that I have a great radio voice and I love making silly voices for my six month old. I can't seem to find any quality advice on how to get started in this business. Joe, for for one thing, go to, just put in a search for voice over work. Three words, voice over work. Do that in a Google search. You're going to get a whole lot of help on exactly what you're asking about here. This is much like what I tell authors. Everybody wants to know, you know, gee, Dan, how do, how do you, you know, do so well, you know, selling books? And I tell them this, and this came to me from Mark Victor Hansen, co-author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, told me this years ago. He says, Dan, everybody wants to write a book. What I tell them is great. Write a book, do a really good job, have really good content. Now you're 10% finished. 90% is going to come from, your success is going to come from marketing, pricing, promotion, and so on. The same is true here. Having a great voice is maybe 10% of the process. 90% of your success will come from your ability to market and sell your services. Now, yes, there is money to be made. There's no question about that. Think about all the voices that we hear every day. You call your bank to get your bank balance, boom, you're going to hear a recorded voice. You call a credit card and they're going to tell you, you know, how much you have remaining in on your credit card that you can do a cash advance or whatever. The on hold message at the car dealership, the countless messages from promoters and providers. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Every radio station has 12 minutes of news and commercials in every hour. Now start to do the math on that. There's thousands and hundreds of thousands of voiceovers being done every day. That's a lot of voice work. However, be realistic about this. I mean, I've been involved in radio for a long time. Talent is not considered (laughs) a, a unique skill. Now that sounds really oxymoronic, doesn't it? But I mean, talent, they assume talent is really easy to find. So in as much as we all like to think that, well, what we have as a talent is really unique, you know, high value kind of thing. No, in radio, talent is a dime a dozen. So people with great voices, unfortunately, are a dime a dozen. I have people all the time who volunteer for me to do voiceovers at no charge at all. That's okay. Now you, and you can take that and leverage it into something. I mean, I have a friend whose voice, her voice is used on most of the things that you hear through Sprint. Or if you get a wake-up call at a hotel, a major hotel, you're likely to hear Connie's voice. And from that, she makes $50,000, $60,000 a year. She's very well known, has been doing that a long time, and has leveraged that into a reasonable income. But I don't consider that extraordinary, and it takes a long, long time to get into that position. So the real issue is, can you market what you have. It's not just having a great voice. It's can you market that and find opportunities to turn that into income? I have never, ever, I I do lots of voice work. I I mean, in terms of recordings, we have a lot of recordings. You know, I have intros to my shows and intros to the audio CDs that we've done. I have never, ever paid a person for 
the voice work that they've done. It's just too easy to get. It's a commodity that's too easy to find. So I think it's pretty challenging to turn that into a reasonable income. And congratulations, but even if you have a voice like, you know, Sean Connery or James Earl Jones, I think it's going to be challenging to find that alone be enough to leverage into significant income. Mike from uh, Alabama says, Dan, my question relates to, now this is, boy, this is one of those hot potatoes. You guys just keep throwing in here, but bring them on. We'll unpack them. I love to work through them with you. Mike says, my question relates to promoting a book that has Christian principles, but can help anyone, whether Christian or not. My dilemma is that, well, I want to reach the widest audience. Part of me feels like I'm selling out looking for a broader category because the main point to this book is that life on earth is a vapor. And until we start pursuing God's plan for each of our lives, we will always stay frustrated. If I truly believe I will spend eternity in heaven I should teach God first, regardless of the market. Can you imagine Paul or Peter repackaging their message to reach a broader audience? Oh, throw me a softball. I mean, pitch me something that I can't. Yeah, this, this is an, this is an easy one. This is an easy one to knock it right out of the park. Mike, I I love your question. Love your heart in this, but can you imagine Peter or Paul repackaging their message to read a broader audience? Yeah. In first Corinthians nine verse 19, this I'm going to read out of the living Bible first. And this has a real, this is Paul speaking and this has a real advantage. I'm not bound to anyone just because he pays my salary yet. I have freely and happily become a servant of any and all so that I can win them to Christ. When I'm with the Jews, I seem as one of them so that they'll listen to the gospel and I can win them to Christ. When I'm with the Gentiles who follow Jewish customs and ceremonies, I don't argue even though I don't agree because I want to help them. When I'm with the heathen, I agree with them as much as I can, except of course that I must always do what is right as a Christian. And so by agreeing, I can win their confidence and help win them too. It goes on and on and on. Paul did whatever needed to be done. He would eat meat that had been sacrificed. I mean, he would do all kinds of things that were against the customs where he lived. If he were in another area, he would do all things so that he could win some. He talked about that again and again. I've had an opportunity to reach a very wide audience with my written materials. And thus I've had opportunities to speak in Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Catholic, Mennonite, Church of Christ, colleges, churches, you know, colleges, universities, corporations, conferences of any kind. Do I compromise my message of finding God's calling? No. Do I modify the content of my messages to fit the audience? All the time. I'm speaking this Saturday night. I've been invited to a home where the leadership of a very large local church are going to be meeting. They're going through some challenges and want me to come in and leadership. It's a very uh, unique denomination. That's great. I mean, I, I'm, I, they want me to come there. They don't ask me about my denominational preferences. They just know that I speak on finding your purpose and on leadership. And so they want me to come speak to them. When Jared, my son, went to Rwanda and he went up in the northern part of the country and actually went up into Uganda, I think it was, and lived with the Maasai, uh, the warriors out in the bush 
for two weeks. They introduced him. What did uh, they uh, made him a part of their tribe? Uh, they initiated him as part into part of their tribe. Well, as part of that ceremony. Now, Jared, keep in mind, was a strict vegetarian. Seventeen years, strict vegetarian, no meat of any kind. He was very strong adherent to that. After these two weeks, they initiated him as part of their tribe. They killed a goat. And this was a high honor for them to kill a goat and cooked it and had that be the meal in celebration as part of introducing as initiating him into their tribe. Did he say, oh no, gee, I'm a vegetarian. Not a chance in the world. He ate it. I mean, is that compromising? I mean, it was certainly a change in what he thought was really important, even health-wise, let alone for other reasons. But, but was he going to just, you know, be rude? Because not a chance. Paul and Peter did that all the time. I mean, I I have books that are have gotten a broad audience. I was on Chris Matthews one time. This was several years ago. Chris Matthews Hardball, and he, he tends to be uh, pretty harsh on Christians. And he asked me a question that I absolutely loved. Again, it was one of those softball pitches. He said, how do you explain as somebody who has an obvious Christian frame, world framework, how do you explain the fact that your books have done so well in a broader audience? And about 89% of my books are sold through what we call the ABA audience. That means through Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, Amazon, and so on. And about 11% are sold through Christian retail outlets. But I love the question. How do I explain the fact that my materials have done so well in a broader audience? I said, you know what? Truth is attractive. All I do is offer truth along with a little bit of hope and encouragement. And it seems to attract people, whether they're a Bible thumping Baptist or whether they're an atheist, it's truth. So I think you can get your message out there without feeling like you have compromised it. Go back and look at what Paul and Peter did. You asked the question. That's a good place to start. This comes from JD. Dan, I've been listening to 48 days for over a year now since I heard about you on Cliff Ravenscraft podcast, Answer Man. All right, now what, what's happened here? This is a long email. I'm going to summarize it. JD has a podcast that he's doing. He loves what he's doing. He's earning a little bit from Amazon Associates and AdSense, other affiliate relationships in his niche but it's only totaled a couple thousand dollars since late 2010, most of which went to cover costs and upgrade equipment. For years, I've struggled with finding exactly what I want to do with my life. I've been working in various fields. When I discovered podcasting, the power to share my feelings and opinions and topics that I'm passionate about, I finally felt like I had found something that I'd love to do for the rest of my life. Now, what he's asking, though, is how can I make money podcasting? Well, I'm probably not a great one to ask because I've never even tried to make money from my podcasting or have I now, obviously, if you think about it, does the podcast, do I ever mention products, events, coaching, consulting in the podcast? Well, sure I do, but those are all other services and products not the podcast itself. I see the podcast as simply a marketing exposure tool and it works extremely well for that. I love the power of podcast and I love connecting with thousands and thousands of people all over the world, but I don't have, you don't hear ads on here. 
you know, I'm not trying to somehow change then the content and put it in a format where it's going to, you know, create income for me. Now, again, it's, it's part of the entire mix and there's no secret about the fact that podcast listeners, I mean, tens of thousands, you know, then go buy products. They sign up for coaching through the 48days.com services. Uh, they get involved in 48days.net, our social networking site. They come to live events here. I mean, we just had an event here. We had a packed house, packed to the gills for our coaching with excellence that we just had last week. And I mean, I ask in there and probably 98% of the people who came are regular podcast listeners. So does it generate money? Absolutely. But not directly. It's indirect. And that's really the best way that I see to use podcasting. I don't think there's a good way. If I started loading up the podcast with a drop in, now we're going to hear a word from Buick. You know, now we're going to hear a spot from Doritos. Well, you guys would assume that it's just like terrestrial radio and you don't want to listen to all that crap. And so you stop listening. That's the power of podcasting. I mean, in my podcast, I already said that radio stations have 12 minutes of news and commercials. Well, I have 48 minutes in my podcast. That means you get a full hour of content without having to listen to the 12 minutes would then make it 60. You don't have to listen to the 12 minutes. It would make it a full hour. I mean, we just simply don't have news and commercials. Now, obviously there's other reasons for me to have 48 minutes. It's kind of our brand around here. So I'd made it 48 and you, the listeners keep telling me that's a pretty good length. When I threatened to make it shorter, I go, I've talked about going to 18 minute segments like they do at the Ted talks. Everybody says, no, leave it at 48. So I just leave it there. But 48, I mean, it's, there's no news. There's no commercials in that. And I would cringe at trying to figure out how to do that. Now, am I saying that I never will? No, I'm not saying that. You know, if somebody shows me a good pattern for that, I'll probably experiment with things. But the podcast is simply one tool in our marketing exposure and not a revenue generator directly. So I would encourage you to look for the same thing. Use a podcast to get your name known, to get the information out there, but then have back-end workshops, seminars, books, live events, whatever it is that you want to do, teleseminars, as ways to generate income based on the exposure that you get from a podcast. Great question. Let me grab one more. Dear Dan, this comes from Brian in Fresno, California. Dan, I've been reading and listening to your material for several months. I agree with your views that the traditional work models are changing as a result, I've been trying to figure out a way to move from the linear income model that I've known for my entire working life. With your advice, that solution is probably something that I'm already doing. I've realized that I have been doing coaching, specifically in higher education admissions and recruiting. I'm burned out on the politics and enrollment goals of private higher education institutions, but I love helping students find a career and educational path that is right for them. I just don't want to be tied to a specific school anymore. I really want to work with high school and community college students to help them find their gifts, skills, and abilities and the resulting careers they would be suited for. From there, I would help them pick the right college. My concern, however, is that with the traditional work models changing, the traditional college to career models are changing too, correct? I heard you say in a recent podcast that young people in my target group should explore more and not worry so much about finding the right path at that age and that you wouldn't coach them until they have some life experience under their belt. So my question is, is this not a good target demographic in which to offer coaching services? I'm also not sure they would or could pay a coach like me. 
Well, Brian, yeah, it's kind of a long one there, but it was all tied together and a good question. And yes, I think that's a poor target audience for you to be paid for your coaching services to help college kids choose what they're going to major in in college. I think is a very challenging business model. They think they know it all. I mean, and, and rightfully so they haven't had enough life experiences to help them in the clarification process. Yeah. I'm not interested in coaching in that arena. And I've, you know, I had three kids and they came through and I'm not saying we ignore them. Certainly we talk and encourage and, you know, help them get all kinds of information to help them make good decisions. But I'm not going to pay for a coach or try to coach them at that point. I want them to have some life experience so they can ask better questions. That's why I choose to coach from people who are highly motivated, who are 45, 50, 55 years old, who realize all of a sudden, man, I've got some challenges here. I met yesterday with a professional who has now four felonies against him and he's losing his license for his very lucrative career. So he has some real motivations for figuring this out. And thus he's more than happy chomping at the bit to write me a big check for me to help him figure out what he's going to do. That's a lot different. And it's not just about making money, but yeah, I don't think the high school college crowd is a good target audience for career coaching. You know, that may, <laughs> that may sound a little weird coming from me as, as a career coach, but I, I'm a big believer in the long view. I mean, this morning we started in my Eagles group looking at a book. It's um, we're going through Darren Hardy's book. He's Darren's a publisher of success magazine. The book is the compound effect came out a couple of years ago, but it's, you know, what we do day by day by day over a long period of time ultimately ends up you know, creating the life that we want or don't want, but it's the long view, not something that's just short. So I'm a big believer in the process of time and helping people learn how to make better decisions. Well, this is Dan Meller. This is the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Thanks for your questions. You can always submit those at the 48days.com site. Click on podcast. This is an exciting journey. We're in exciting times. I know that you're having fun and excited as I am as we continue to find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, fulfilling, and profitable. Don't settle for less. 